Hi, ladies. Welcome to our Virtue Podcast. My name is Shelley Hurley, and today we are looking at James 5, 1-12, and the title of this week's study is Patiently Waiting. It was 50 years ago, this spring, in 1973, that I first heard the good news of the gospel at a movie theater. It was a Billy Graham movie unbeknownst to me. They gave an invitation to walk down the aisle to receive Jesus, and I did. I surrendered my life to him that day and placed my trust in him and what he did for me on the cross. This wasn't about religion, but a real relationship with the living God. He began to radically change me from the inside out. This was during the Jesus Movement days, or the Jesus Revolution, as Time Magazine called it, and everywhere you went, Christians greeted one another with, Maranatha, the Lord cometh. In fact, I had a brown leather belt that I wore around my hip-hugger jeans that said, Maranatha. We lived with the expectancy that Jesus was coming back any second. I remember wanting to tell everyone what Jesus had done in my life so they too could be ready to meet the Lord when he returns. When James wrote this epistle, he wrote it with the sense that Jesus could come back at any moment. Because he believed his coming is imminent, it affected the way he lived every aspect of his life. And today, almost 2,000 years later, as we observe the signs of the times, we see that the stage is set for the return of Jesus Christ. Are we prepared for his coming? How should we prepare? In this chapter, James gives us examples to follow and examples not to follow in verses 1 to 6. Let's start by looking at verses 1 to 3. James starts, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Don't be like this. In light of his coming, store your treasures in heaven. In James's opening remarks in this chapter, he offers a stern warning to these wealthy unbelievers whom he first mentions in chapter 2. These were those who lacked true faith and had placed their trust in their riches, selfishly hoarding them, and had abused and defrauded the poor believers, failing to pay them their proper wages, dragging them into court for failure to pay their debts. They had the judges in their back pockets. They might be able to bribe the earthly judges, but they can't bribe God. James says, listen up, as if to snap them out of their days, judgment is coming. He will weep and howl because his wealth will mean nothing to him on the day of judgment and cannot purchase his salvation. His riches won't do him any good as far as his relationship with God is concerned. And on that day, that final day, that day of reckoning, he will weep and howl because he chose money and possessions as his God and lived a short-sighted life choosing the temporary and fleeting pleasures and comforts of this life versus trusting in the eternal God and living for His everlasting kingdom. Is our faith a genuine faith? Is our trust in our money or our savings accounts, our IRAs or our 401ks, our houses or goods, and what we have, or is it in the one who has us? Faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. If my faith is placed in riches that can be destroyed by moths and rust or stolen by thieves, then it isn't a faith well-placed. I can tell you by experience that the more we own, the more we own owns us. It seems like I live in a constant state of repairing something that is breaking down. 
Does all this mean that it is simple to be wealthy? To save for the future? No, of course not. Preparing and saving, not selfish hoarding, is commendable. And there are godly, wealthy people in the Bible. Abraham, who chose to live in tents because he waited for the city built by God. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb to our Lord. Lydia, who gave her home to be used as a church. And many others. We are told that it is not money that is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money that is the source in 1 Timothy 6.10. It's said that there are four classes of people when it comes to riches. Number one, those who are rich in this world's goods and poor towards God. Number two, those who are poor in this world and rich toward God. Number three, those who are poor in this world and the next. And lastly, those who have a considerable amount of this world's goods, but because they hold them with a loose hand, are rich in the next world also. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. If we take any of our U.S. currency in our hand and turn it over, we can read the phrase, In God we trust. This can serve as a reminder to us that it is God who will care for us and provide for us. We are to place our trust in Him and not in uncertain riches that can make themselves wings and fly away. Instead, we're to seek first the kingdom of God, and then God will provide everything else that we need, Matthew 6, 33. We are to keep a light grasp. Remember that your money is not your money. Everything we have comes from the Lord. Pray and ask Him how you should use it. It is God's for you to steward, not to just hoard for yourself, but to use to invest in the kingdom, to share with, bless, and meet the needs of others. It's been said you can't take your money with you, but you can send it on ahead. We need to live a life with a view toward eternity. Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Our next point is, the Lord is coming. He will vindicate. Let's look at verses 4 to 6. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. There is help in him, and the Lord of hosts when there is no other help to be had. This is the name we call on when all other sources have failed. These verses are not only a warning to the ungodly rich, but an encouragement to those who were and are being mistreated. For those who have been treated unjustly in this life— Know that your prayers, your cries have not fallen on deaf ears. God hears, and there will be a day when all the wrongs and injustice in this life will be made right. Not only does God hear the cries of the defrauded laborers and your cries, but he is the one who will vindicate. The Lord of hosts is the avenger of the poor and needy. I think of those who have been defrauded— Victims of Ponzi schemes, those elderly people, and others who have fallen for some of these modern-day scams. Victims of identity theft call on the name of the Lord of hosts. 
considering that the Lord is coming again, and he, the Lord of hosts, will judge those wicked rich oppressors. In verse 7a, James then says to the believers, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. James uses two different words for patience in this chapter. This one is macrothumeo, exercising patience with people, or patience enduring difficult people. It means holding our passions down and not letting them burst out in anger and resentment, long suffering. James is now directing his brothers in Christ to be patient, even in the midst of injustice, to trust in God in these trials and not try to get even for the wrongs that have been committed against them. In Psalm 37, 7 and 8, David writes, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. James makes many indirect references to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus mentions in Matthew 5, 38 through 44, to not resist the evil person, but to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Instead of being passionate to get revenge, we are to be passionate in praying for those who have wronged us. There's no greater example of this than Jesus. He was hated, but he did not hate. As he willingly went to the cross, was beaten beyond recognition, spat upon and blasphemed, and as he was crucified for our sins, he said regarding those who put him there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 20-23, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. To fight back when wrong is comparatively easy, but to love back is Christ-like. Jesus didn't say, don't stand up for righteousness when we see the atrocities and injustices that are happening around us, but he did say that when we do, we can expect persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But if we are persecuted for righteousness, we are to love and pray for those who have wronged us, not seek revenge. Even on a daily basis, if someone says something unkind to you, it is so easy to want to lash back and want to get even, even if it's just with words, to say something unkind back. But that is not the Jesus way. He is coming, therefore wait patiently as the farmer. Verse 7b says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. To wait means to watch for with hopeful expectation. The farmer waits patiently for the early and latter rains, but this does not mean inactivity or idleness. He is working hard. He prepares the soil, plants the seed, and waits for the autumn rain. And then he must tend to the crop that is beginning to grow and sprout and wait finally for the spring rain so that the crop can fully ripen and be ready for harvest. 
As he waits, he knows that it is up to God's timing. The rain is out of his control, and he must depend on God and wait for God's timing. But he can endure because he has his eye on the harvest at the end. The farmer and the Christian must both wait, work, and live by faith. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. As we wait for the Lord's return, it doesn't mean to just sit back and be idle, or to wait on a rooftop in white robes for the Lord to snatch us away. There is work to be done, Jesus said in Luke 19, 13, to occupy or do business until I come. We need to be busy with God's business. There's a whole world out there that needs to see that Jesus loves them. We need to let our lights shine in a dark, hateful world, being his hands and feet to the needy, loving the unlovable, and sharing the good news of the gospel. Jesus says in John 4, verses 35 and 36, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In Matthew twenty-five thirteen, Jesus says, Watch, for you know not the day nor the hour of your Lord's return. We are to be alert, live with expectancy, and yet the Lord tarries. Why? You know, I expected him to come back when I was first saved about 50 years ago. If that had happened, how many of you would not have been ready? So often we view God's seeming delay as indifference to sin, but such is not the case. He is patient and long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in 2 Peter 3.9. He is waiting for the harvest to be complete, for that last one to come and receive him. So until that time, we need to work hard like the farmer, planting seeds, pulling weeds, cultivating, trusting the Lord to send the rain so that his harvest will be rich, ripe, and abundant. In Matthew 9:37 and 38, we read Jesus was moved with compassion for the crowds and said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Lord is not willing that any should perish. Are we? When he says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Will we raise our hands and say, Hear my Lord, send me. In verse 8, he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. To establish your hearts, what does that mean? It means to stand, set fast, to fix firmly, prop up, to make stable, fix. It is an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. How do we do that? Well, one verse that I love is Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Jeremiah writes, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Psalm 92, 13 and 14 says, Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. As we trust in the Lord, 
As we trust in and cling to his promises, walking in them, listening to and obeying his word, spending time worshiping our God for who he is, spending time with God's people, then our roots grow deeper and deeper so that when the storms of life come, and they surely will, that we would not topple over, but we will stand strong and flourish. Next, in light of his coming, don't grumble. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The King James Version says, grudge not. I have an acronym for this. Grumbling remarks undermine and divide God's elect. We have better things to do than to grumble and be at odds with one another. We have a common enemy and a common goal. Jesus says we are to be one as he is one with the Father. We are to fix our gaze on our heavenly mission to preach the gospel to the whole world and to love one another. Instead of grumbling about one another or to one another about the present state of the world and how bad things are, remember instead Jesus' words in Luke 21:28, when he said, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. I have often said this verse out loud and laughed in a conversation that is sinking and going lower and lower down this rabbit hole. We need to get our eyes off of these circumstances and onto Jesus. He says, remember, the judge is at the door. Are you looking forward to his coming or would you be caught off guard? His presence can be either comforting or convicting. In light of his coming, patiently endure. Verses 10 and 11 my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. As we look at the examples of patient endurance in the prophets and Job, we see God does not preserve from suffering those he has called, but he does preserve them in suffering. Look at the prophets. How were they able to endure such tremendous suffering and hardship? Hebrews 11 shares a lot of the horrendous suffering they endured. In verses 13 and 14, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They had an eternal perspective, and they embraced God's promises. We can endure the suffering and hardship as we look to God's promises, trust in them, and embrace them as welcome friends. Hold on tight to his words of comfort and hope, and don't let go. Not one of God's promises will ever fail us. And we are to patiently endure as Job. Upon hearing the unimaginably devastating news of the loss of his livestock, servants, and his children. Job praised the Lord. As we worship God and focus our eyes on him in the midst of our suffering, he changes our perspective. In Job 1 verses 20 to 22, we read that Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job chose not to grumble against God, but worshipped him instead. 
Although Job never knew the reasons why he had to suffer so, he persevered, seeing that his suffering was temporary and his hope was in his Redeemer. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at last on the earth. Are we examples of faith and patient endurance for others who are watching our lives? Are we looking to, trusting in, and embracing God's promises when we go through hard times? Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Do you believe like Joseph, who was badly mistreated by his brothers and left for dead, and yet said, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God used it to save multitudes and future generations. What if Job had taken Mrs. Job's advice and just cursed God and died? What if Paul and Silas had chosen to groan and complain in the prison instead of singing praises in the midnight hour? Where would the Philippian jailer and his household be today? What if Joseph had chosen to blame God for all his troubles and captivity? Where would his family and descendants be? How we respond in times of trial and testing matters. God will not waste our sorrows, but will use them for His purposes as we place ourselves and them in His loving, caring hands and trust Him even in the midst. At His coming, there are rewards and blessings for endurance. Jesus said in Revelation 22:12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. In Job 42, we see the compassion and mercy of God as the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. The Lord restored Job's losses as he prayed for his friends. He gave him twice as much as he had before. For you, dear suffering saint today, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. James believed in that imminent return of Jesus Christ and lived as such. Do we live as if he could return at any moment? If we do, until he comes, let's place our trust in him. In light of his coming, store our treasures in heaven, keeping a light touch on the things of this world and having an eternal perspective. Be patient and long-suffering with others. Patiently wait, watching, waiting, and working with hopeful expectation, sowing seeds of the gospel and being part of God's harvest. Establishing our hearts, having a faith that is firmly planted in God's word. Not grumbling and complaining, but praising instead. Patiently enduring as Job and the prophets, knowing that our suffering is temporary and there is a reward at the end. Jesus' very last words in the Bible are, Surely I am coming quickly. And the Apostle John responds eagerly and expectantly, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, Maranatha, I pray that these words bring you comfort and hope today as you patiently wait. Amen.